0: Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. Australia has a strong alliance with America, one that has remained unwavering through changes of leadership and turbulent international developments. While agreements such as AUKUS and the Quad have strengthened our position in the region, it has come at the cost of relations with other states and could, in the future, draw us into conflict. With his new quarterly essay, Sleepwalk to War, Australia's Unthinking Alliance with America, fresh off the presses, I'm joined today by Hugh White, an Emeritus Professor of Strategic Studies at the Australian National University, former Deputy Defence Secretary for Strategy and Principal Author of Australia's Defence White Paper 2000. Welcome back to Asia Rising, Hugh. Nice to be with you, mate again, Matt. 2000, you've been having a long series of thoughts about this very topic, haven't you? This Uh, this seems to be a culmination of sorts, but uh, I'm sure it's
1: just a continuation and there's more yet to come. Well, well, (laughs) it's it's certainly an issue I've been focusing on for a long time. I I guess I can date the point at which I started thinking about the strategic implications for Australia and for our relations with America of China's rise Mm. to 1992, in fact, and I was then working in the Office of National Assessments, and I can remember a quite specific conversation with one of my colleagues, which made me think that the biggest event that we were living through was not in fact the collapse of the Soviet Union, which of course had just happened the year before, but, sure, but yeah. was the rise in China. I mean, one started looking at the long-term trajectory of China's economy and the strategic implications if China achieved that trajectory, and I started thinking, well, that's really big for Australia. And in a sense, as you say, a bit sad really, I've been I've been focusing on that same set of issues uh, pretty well continuously. Uh, since then but of course the co- the story keeps on developing and that there's a
0: lot going on there so in your essay you've outlined the risk that australia placed itself in It seems to be uh, the culmination of this as well, allying ourselves so closely with America and so resolutely against China. So can you take me through the position that we find ourselves in now? Do you think Australia's alliance with America is, is unthinking as you say in the title of your quarterly essay?
1: Exactly, I mean, I think the big story we're living through is that over the last few years, I would say since 2017, Australia has woken up to something which I think has been there for a long time and that is that as China's power grows, Its ambitions grow, and Mm. it seeks uh, to expand its place in the international system. And in particular, I think we now deal with a China that seeks to take America's place as the leading country in East Asia and the Western Pacific. That's very disconcerting for Australia, very worrying for Australia, because we've always regarded our security as depending on the domination of the Western Pacific and East Asia by our great mates, our great and powerful friends, as Menzies famously called them, first Britain, and then when Britain failed, America and i've never had a problem with the idea of australia having a close alliance with the united states but the argument i'm making in this essay is that as we've come to realize the significance and seriousness of china's challenge we've completely trusted in the united states to solve the problems that that raises for us by pushing back against china resisting its challenge preventing china becoming the leading power in east asia and preserving primacy itself Mm. and the key argument i'm making in the essay and that is why it's called Australia's Unthinking Alliance, is we're unthinkingly assuming America can solve our China problem for us. We're unthinkingly assuming that it can remain the primary power in East Asia in the years and decades ahead as it has been in the past. I think that's wrong because I think China is simply going to be too powerful and too determined for America to be able to push back effectively against China. And I think it's dangerous, hence the sleepwalk to war element of the title of the essay, because I think as America ceases to push back against China, the risk of coming into confrontation and the confrontation turning into a conflict is quite high. Mm-hmm. And unlike, for example, uh, the former defense minister, now leader of the opposition, Peter Dutton, I don't think a conflict between America and China is a good idea because I don't think it's a war that can be won by America or its allies. And I think it's likely to be a catastrophe. And I therefore think we need to step back, stop depending on the United States, start rethinking our approach to China's rise, start rethinking the way we conceive our role in Asia and how we see Asia evolving, Uh, essentially start again from a blank sheet of paper and rethink our entire foreign policy because the foundations of our old policy, I think, have been undermined by this massive shift in wealth and power from China to America over the last 20 years.
0: Okay. There's a lot to go through there. So let's unpack just a few things there. Let's start with if it's a rethink, a blank sheet of paper, a step back from following America's lead, which steps should we be taking then?
1: Well, I think the first thing we need to do is to really understand the reality of China's power. And one of the most distinctive features, I think, of our predicament over the last uh, 20 or 30 years has been we've consistently underestimated China. We've underestimated how fast its economy would grow. Mm. We've underestimated... Not just how big China's economy would become, but also how sophisticated it would become, its capacity to master key technologies. I mean, I, I, I don't recall anyone predicting, even 10 years ago, that by now China would be competing with America for leadership in key technologies like artificial intelligence. And we've also underestimated China's resolve. For a long time, it was very common for people to say, and they said in response to some of the earlier arguments I was making about these issues that we didn't have to worry too much about China because even if it did become rich and powerful, it still wouldn't choose to contest the United States position in Asia, its leading position in Asia, because China was happy with the way things were. Mm. That, that always seemed to me to be wrong. And we're still to some extent doing that. I think as the previous government in particular, and I think the present government too, to some extent... I've optimistically assumed that if we just talk tough the Chinese will back off yeah I, th- yeah. I think they are underestimating just how determined China is about this so the first thing we need to do to with this blank sheet of paper as you say is to get a, a more realistic view of where China's coming from the second thing we need to do is to get a more realistic view of where America' is coming from because we're also used to thinking of America as all-powerful and is very resolved we've consistently made the opposite mistake in relation to America that we have in relation to China. That is, we've overestimated its power and overestimated its resolve. We were convinced that it had the capacity not just to invade Iraq, but to transform Iraq and through Iraq to transform the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And we were convinced that America had both the power and the resolve to do that. Well, that turned out to be wrong. We were convinced that America had the power and resolve to transform Afghanistan. That turned out to be wrong. And now it has stepped up, committed itself under Trump and now under Biden to pushing back against China, resisting China's challenge and preserving the old US-led order in Asia. And when I look at what America's actually done as opposed to what it says, I do not see a country which is marshalling the resources, the energy, uh, the policy initiatives that are going to be required in order to achieve its strategic objectives in the face of the power and ambition of China. You know, I think the heart of America's approach to this is the illusion that if America just keeps on doing what it's done in the past, it can effectively contain China's ambitions and prevent it pushing America out of Asia. And I think the idea that all America has to do to defeat the China of today is the same kind of things that it did to contain the China of 20 years ago is a fantasy because the China of today is immensely more powerful and immensely more ambitious. Than the China of 20 years ago. So I think the second thing we have to do is to look hard at the United States Mm. and recognize its limitations. Now, that's not to say for a moment that I think America is finished as a power. America will always be one of the two or three most powerful countries in the world. When we look ahead 20 years, it's very plain the most powerful country in the world will be China. The second most powerful will be America. The third most powerful will be India. If we look ahead 40 years, then America America and India India will probably change change places. And India will probably be giving China a run for its money, but America will still be number three. Mm. So none of my argument is that we should forget about America, but what we shouldn't do is to expect America to do more than it can do. And the idea that the America of today, for all its strengths, can continue to dominate China's own backyard when China will have an economy that's substantially bigger than America's And has I think a very very deep resolve to dominate its own region. China has all the advantages of being the local power and all the incentives and resolve that comes from being the local power. For that reason I think we just have to be much more realistic about what America can do for us.
0: There's being realistic though and having an acceptance of the trajectory of things and the realities in our own corner of the world. But realistically, what can Australia actually do? It is rethinking how we are approaching our relationship with those two world powers, maybe mean rethinking how we're approaching our local agreements, say in in our own backyard, maybe with Asian neighbours and in the region more
1: directly? Yeah, look, that's exactly the right question to ask. And this is where the issue becomes really demanding and really, in some ways, quite exciting. The first thing I think we have to do is to rethink the way we approach the other countries in the region, because Mm -hmm. at the moment, our approach to the strategic diplomacy in Asia has been very much about persuading other countries in the region to side with America as America pushes back against China. Mm -hmm. And because our policy has been so focused on assuming that America will solve our China problem for us, we have very much operated on the basis that the focus of our diplomacy should be to get other countries lined up on the same side. So when we think about India, for example, successive Australian governments, I think including the new government, see India primarily as a supporter for the United States against China. The Quad. The Quad is of course the absolute sort of frame of that. I just don't think that's the right way to see India. India is a great power in its own right. It's going to seek, it is seeking, it does seek to be the dominant power in its part of the world. It seeks to be the dominant power in South Asia and the Indian Ocean, just as China seeks to be the dominant power in East Asia and the Western Pacific. And so I think the right way for Australia to approach India is not as a counterbalance to China in East Asia. But it's a great power in its own right in South Asia and the Indian Ocean. And that matters to us because we're an Indian Ocean power as well as an East Asian, Western Pacific power. Mm. Likewise, I think we should be approaching Japan. Japan is obviously very worried about China. And it obviously, like us, would very much like the United States to stick around to deal with China for it. But I think it's a mistake to assume that the Japanese see all of these issues just the same way we do. The debate about China in Japan is very complex. There are some people in Japan who are very plainly anti-China, the way Australia is, but there's also a lot of important players in Japan who recognize that Japan simply has no alternative, but to build a stable long-term relationship with China. I think what we should be doing when we talk to Japan is to try and talk to some of those people as well, because that's our challenge. And this really is the third part of the the answer to your question. We have to rethink our own relationship, not just with India and Japan, but also with China. It's absolutely understandable that that both the previous government and the present government, in response to the very blatant bullying tactics that Chinese have unleashed against us over the last couple of years, that the most important thing they've felt has been that we need to stand up to that bullying, not surrender to it, just make sure that we stand our ground. Of course, that's fine. But it doesn't get us very far, because it doesn't give us a model of what our future relationship with China should be like. Of course, we shouldn't bow to their bullying. But we do have to ask ourselves, what kind of relationship will we have with China as the most powerful country in our region and also the most economically significant and therefore potentially most economically important for Australia in future as it has been in the past. I don't think it works for us simply to presume that the only model for a future relationship with China we can have is a China that goes back to the way China used to be before it became ambitious. Successive Australian political leaders, including Anthony Albanese as Prime Minister, say, well, it's China's fault because China's changed. And the implication is that what we expect, our model of the future relationship with China, is that China will change back. Mm. Well I'm here to say one thing I'm sure won't happen, China will not change back. We have to learn to work with and live with the China that's there today. And that's not to say that we have to surrender to everything China wants, absolutely not. We need to try and uh, alone and with others shape the way China deals with us so that we can protect our most important interests. But recognizing that China is going to be the most powerful country in asia whatever we do and recognizing that australia has no choice but to find a way to work with and get on with that china Mm. is incredibly important and part of that this case is the fourth point we want to be very conscious of the challenge china poses to us but we also don't want to exaggerate it i think one of the problems with the debate in australia particularly since 2017 We've panicked a bit about China. We've started to talk about China as if it poses a direct threat to our own political system here in Australia. R- real alarm, for example, about Chinese political influence and so on. I think a lot of that has been seriously exaggerated. I don't think China, as a great power in Asia, is going to seek to influence us pretty strongly, and they'll be pretty ruthless in doing it in any issue that really bears closely on China's interests. But I don't think. China has an interest or an objective in shaping the way Australian domestic politics works. What we need to recognise is that although China is going to be a very influential and at times intrusive regional power, it doesn't necessarily threaten us with uh, what uh, some authors have colourfully called a silent invasion. Yeah, I think yeah. you know, we need to keep this in perspective. We don't want to make it look worse than it is. And the last point I'd make is I think we should have a little more confidence in ourselves. There's a bit of an air of panic about this, that we've begun to cling to the United States and hope desperately for that the United States will solve our China problem for us. Because we simply can't imagine how we could make our way in Asia without America being there as the dominant power and keeping China in check. Mm. I don't think we should be so, if I can put it this way, so defeatist. I think it's perfectly possible for Australia to make its way in an Asia which is no longer dominated by an Anglo-Saxon power. Mm. I think we need to return to the kind of confidence that leaders like Hawke and Keating, but also Malcolm Fraser and Gough Whitlam had in Australia's capacity to reinvent ourselves, reimagine ourselves, think of ourselves as a country operating in the Asian strategic system independently, without depending on a great and powerful friend to stand beside us. It's not that I don't think it's a very challenging task. Of course, it's immensely challenging. You could say it's the most challenging diplomatic and strategic task Australia's ever faced, but there's not much alternative. Mm. Unless you think America can pull it off and push China back into its box, I just don't think that's going to happen. Then we have no choice but to find a way. It's certainly true that going to war with China is not a solution. And I think one of the things that worried me about the trend in thinking uh, under the last government, and it remains to be seen how this materialises under the new government, but under the last government, they developed with the sort of talk we saw from Peter Dutton and to a certain extent from Scott Morrison, the idea that it would be worth going to war with China to defend American primacy, to preserve the US leadership uh, that's been so good for us in the past. And I think that's wrong because I don't think that's a war we can win. And I think it's a war that would be catastrophic, probably a nuclear war and much worse, much worse for Australia than the task of living with And Asia dominated by China.
0: You've gone through uh, in your quarterly essay you've talked about the risk of Taiwan being the war that we're engaged with with China at least China having designs upon uh, unifying with Taiwan to the extent where America is provoked to response or at least challenged to response whether they would and inevitably whether that would drag Australia into a war with its greatest ally its greatest friend how inevitable do you see any of that being? You seem to be on the air of
1: if China wants
0: Taiwan, they will take Taiwan, and that they are the ones who want
1: it the most. I'm amongst the more pessimistic about the trajectory of the Taiwan issue, because I think the incentives for the Chinese to move militarily against Taiwan are quite strong. The first is they really want Taiwan, as they would say, back. This is something which you know, I think one can see, you know, goes very deep in China's ambitions and psyche. And I think for the Chinese, getting control of Taiwan, as they would see it, getting Taiwan back, marks the erasure of the last of the humiliating issues the of shame the century. The same World War II. The, the World, yeah. War, World War II and, and of all the humiliations before. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, they see it as the Japanese having taken Taiwan off them right back in the wars in the last decade of the 19th century. And I think the Chinese certainly want Taiwan back for that reason. I think Xi Jinping probably wants Taiwan back because he wants that to be his own personal achievement. Mm. You know, Mao won the civil war. Uh, Deng Xiaoping got Hong Kong back. He wants uh, his place in that uh, pantheon of uh, Chinese leadership. So that's important. But I think there's something even more important because Taiwan has become... As a result of attitudes both in Beijing and in Washington, has become perhaps the key symbol of strategic leadership in East Asia. Mm. You know, right back in 1949, 1950, uh, the Americans identified their ability to prevent the communists taking Taiwan as the symbol of their continued strategic domination in East Asia. And I think that's continued. And America's capacity to deny Taiwan to China has been very significant for America's sense of its leadership in Asia, and that remains true today. And that's why America, despite the one-China policy, continues to put so much emphasis on denying Taiwan to China. And that makes it very tempting for the Chinese. Yeah, because it's like a challenge. If, exactly. Yeah. It's really as simple as this. If the Chinese can take Taiwan in the face of America's attempts to stop them, then that proves to the world that America is no longer the dominant power in East Asia and the Western Pacific and China has taken its place. Yeah, and conversely, yeah. if America can continue to deny Taiwan to China, then that proves to the world that America is still the primary power in East Asia. And so what's at stake is not just Taiwan itself, huge issue in its own right, of course, mm. including 25 million people uh, with, a, with a very vigorous and admirable d- democratic um, political culture. Uh, that's very significant in its own right. But on the other hand, the other thing that's at stake... Is the future strategic leadership of the world's most populous and dynamic region. And, you know, I think from China's from point of view, from Xi Jinping's point of view, if he can uh, mount an attack on Taiwan, succeed in retaking, as he would say it, retaking Taiwan, and seeing America back off and lose its credibility by failing to defend Taiwan. Win-win, yeah. Then he hasn't just won Taiwan back. Yeah. He's won China's domination of its own backyard. He's reasserted China as a great power. Mm. Now, what strikes me is how tempting that is for him. On the other hand, of course, Xi Jinping doesn't want to go to to, to war with the United States. And so everything depends on how confident Xi Jinping is Mm. that America would in the end, despite all the big talk, not defend taiwan
0: there's a big chance of that i mean look if, if i can really simplify it you over there on the other side of the table you are america me over here i'm china and there's a good five feet separating yep. us in this podcast for those of us listening at home <laughs> this cup of water right next to me is taiwan that's right are you ready yep stop me from taking yeah, it no, that's so right. wait wait <laughs> i'm going i'm going yep i have taken the yeah. cup of water
1: yeah it's gone <laughs> yeah there we go that was so refreshing (laughs) exactly look i think i mean it's absolutely right and you pointed out the (laughs) geometry of the situation is incredibly important yeah but it's also worth bearing in mind that you know the significance of the geometry is mediated by the actual military capabilities and one of the things that's really changed and i think you know we don't focus on enough is that even 20 years ago despite the fact that china has all those advantages of geography yeah. the united states preponderance of air and mar- maritime capability was so overwhelming that you could be very confident even 20 years ago you could be very confident the united states would achieve a swift and pretty painless victory over china in a war over taiwan but today is different mm. because in the last 20 years you could say last 25 years the chinese have put a huge effort into building precisely the air and maritime forces they need to prevent America providing significant support to Taiwan in the face of a Chinese attack, and they've done it very effectively. I mean, you know, my day job has always been a defence planner, if you know what I mean. And for 25 years now, I've been watching what the Chinese have been doing, and I think they're doing exactly the right thing. Yeah, yeah. And so you know, the reality today is that an American president deciding, as he probably would have to do, or she have to do, at three o'clock in the morning, because that's the way crises always break are we going to respond militarily to a Chinese move against Taiwan, would have to recognize that the chances of a swift, easy victory are now very low. Yeah. That's got two implications. The first is the war itself. He'd be committing America to a very big, you know, major war, much, much bigger than anything America's fought since Vietnam. With no prospect of a swift and decisive victory, and in fact a very high likelihood, that after a couple of weeks in which a lot of damage would be done you know the u.s would would lose it if they dared to commit their aircraft carriers they'd lose at least some of them they'd lose a lot of ships they'd lose a lot of aircraft so would the Chinese mm-hmm. you know the America is still very formidable the Americans would do a lot of damage to China but after a couple of weeks neither side would have done enough damage to the other to produce a significant outcome and no particular prospect of that being broken with conventional forces and what happens then is that both sides start to think about nuclear weapons. These are two nuclear-powered states, and I think we need to think very carefully about the prospect of any war over Taiwan becoming a nuclear war. The issue is easily important enough to China, and I think also potentially important enough for America for that to come on the table. In the essay, I, I unpack a bit the sort of rather complex strategic calculations that then come into play. The reality is that America cannot use nuclear weapons, cannot expect to use the threat of nuclear weapons, to persuade the Chinese to back off. The Chinese might themselves decide to use nuclear weapons. Whichever way around it is, I think the real issue for American policymakers is that when you start talking about nuclear weapons like that, the decisive advantage lies with the country that has the biggest stake in the outcome. Yeah, Because both sides know that the country with the biggest stake is the less likely to back off. And so I therefore think that getting back to the poor old president in the situation room at three o'clock in the morning, when he or she is asked to decide whether they're going to start this war at all, there's a very high likelihood that they'll think, look, on balance, despite all the stuff we've said, preserving Taiwan, important though that is, preserving America's position in East Asia, important though that is, is not important enough to risk starting a war that might well end up with Chinese nuclear weapons on American cities. Mm. That is the choice that he or she would face. And if that's the case, then I think it's quite likely they'd back off. And what's more, I think it's quite likely that Xi Jinping would calculate that American president would back off. And that makes it more likely that Xi Jinping would take the risk of launching an attack against Taiwan. And that's why I'm relatively pessimistic about that whole situation now if America does back off I think it's the credibility of its strategic position in East Asia is pretty swiftly destroyed and that means that we'll no longer have America engaged in the Western Pacific which means we can no longer rely on it to look after us because in the end America's Australia's ally not because they like our cute accent or like watching reruns of Crocodile Dundee it's because Australia has been a valuable element in supporting America's strategic posture in the Western Pacific and if it steps back from that It doesn't need Australia as an ally. Mm. It's as simple as that. Just as Britain didn't need Australia as an ally when it stepped back from Asia after the Second World War. So Australia's just come
0: through uh, what commentators have called a a khaki election, and you've written in your essay that regarding the change of government, uh, that the good news is that Labor will be less tempted than the Morrison government was to exacerbate tensions with Beijing to score political points at home. So do you think that the new government will change its directory? Uh, i like the timing of this essay that you got which either necessitated a quick rewrite a couple of months ago when there was a change of an election so I'm just kind of gauging if you if the first draft was more negative than positive.
1: You're right Uh, it was a pretty hair-raising process because I had to Send a text to Black Ink about a month before the election. Yeah, but then I got about five hours with it after the election. Oh, right. Now I took. I took. <laughs> once it became clear that Morrison wasn't going to call the election before, I had to finish the manuscript. I more or less tossed a coin and decided that I would write the essay on the basis that Labor was going to win. Yeah, and I. would shifted back if they didn't. Now, I still didn't do a bit of rewriting after the election because of some aspects of what had gone on. But I think, you know, the core point to make there is that, you know, going to you know, the observation you made about it being a car key election, is that although we had an election, which I think was the most car key since 1966, that is, I think you have to go back to that key Vietnam based or dominated election in 1966 to see an election campaign in which there's been so much talk about defense and strategic mm-hmm. issues and of course partly that was because of ukraine partly because it was the solomon islands chinese military agreement that was announced um, halfway through the campaign and partly it was the broader background uh, the odd thing is that although there was a lot of talk about it during the campaign in fact both sides went to the election with very similar policies mm-hmm. i think the key difference between the two parties is really just in tone because i do think the morrison government particularly after March or April 2020 actually sought to score political points by deliberately provoking Beijing, whereas I think Labor does not seem to be inclined to do that. But I think the essential policy is the same, that is that Labor, as much as the coalition, looks to the United States to solve our China problem for us, looks to the United States to push China back into its box and to restore the US-led order that we know and love. And so I think Labor has come to office you know, very committed to the basic posture that their predecessors adopted. Now, partly that was political calculation. I think Labour's uh, was understandably very cautious about taking a position on such a sensitive issue that might be subject to criticism by the conservative side of politics. But I also think it reflects, to some degree, a conviction. I think there are a lot of people on the Labor side these days who are very single-mindedly committed to the U.S. alliance as the foundation for Australia's place in the world. And I also think it reflects a kind of a lack of imagination. I don't think many people on the Labour side of politics in the last 20 years or so have really thought much about foreign policy. Mm. And I don't think they've thought very much about the challenge posed by China. I think it's been not just politically easy, but you might even say psychologically easy, just to go along with what everyone else has been saying. And I think the problem is that they've now inherited a policy... And are committed themselves to a policy which i think is not going to work for all the reasons we've talked about i don't think relying on america is going to help us build the kind of relationship we're going to need with china over the decades ahead, and it's not going to help us build the kind of position we're going to need to have in Asia more broadly over the decades ahead.
0: There was a certain amount of momentum as well to the first week or so of the Albanese government. So day one, he hadn't even confirmed a majority or anything like that, and he's on a plane to go and meet with the Quad members. Uh, As soon as Penny Wong gets back in Australia, she's back on another plane to go to the Pacific Islands to almost counterbalance China's recent activities there. Is there a sense of inevitability to all of
1: this well i think there's certainly a sense of momentum i think that's exactly right it was really i think very unfortunate that the new government faced such direct challenges really so early on in its term as you say you know Anthony Albanese and Penny Wong flew off to Tokyo for the quad meeting literally you know 12 hours or less than 12 hours after they'd been sworn in Mm. and because that meeting had been pre-arranged for him to decide not to go it would have been read as a gesture of abandonment of the quad now i think i actually would would have more respect for albanese as a foreign policy prime minister had he actually not gone i think he could have said look yeah. you know it's early days i want to s- sit down and re- you know think through these careful issues it's not that i'm walking away from the quad but i don't think i should rush off i've still got a cabinet to build i think it was in a sense an expression of a lack of confidence in his own capacity to forge his own path Mm. on foreign policy that he felt he had no choice but to follow the uh, the schedule that had been laid down by his predecessors and likewise i think penny wong's follow-up trip to the pacific was slightly different because it was the chinese his her chinese counterpart wang Mm. yi who was on this big swing through uh, i think he was going to eight pacific countries or five anyway And I think the sense that it was important for somebody to get out there and show the Australian flag was understandable. I think that was a more defensible proposition. But I I think it is unfortunate that with with the Quad meeting, with the stuff in the South Pacific, and now the NATO summit in Europe, I do think there's a sense in which events have rushed him into adopting positions, which he hasn't really had a chance to think through. I mean, I, I, I don't think it's be regarded as terribly negative observation to say that Anthony Albanese has not come to the prime ministership with a very deep background of thinking carefully about these issues. He now does have to think very carefully about them because it is one of the absolutely biggest issues that he's going to face as his prime minister. I think he understands that. Mm. But to find himself in a position where he's rushing off, endorsing things like the Quad, endorsing NATO's new strategic concept, endorsing the way NATO is now talking about responding both to Russia and to China, apparently welcoming the idea that NATO is going to join us in our campaign to push China back into its box. I think that's unwise. I don't think there's a lot of credibility in what NATO's saying. Mm. And so I think it's unfortunate that Albanese has by events been rushed into endorsing these very bold, you know, heroic statements that we've had coming out of the NATO summit without a chance to ask, well, you know, where's this heading? So uh, I think Albanese needs to take a break, take a deep breath.
0: And start with his blank sheet of paper? Start with
1: a blank sheet of paper, exactly.
0: All right. Thank you for your time today, Hugh.
1: My pleasure, Matt. Thank you very much.
0: You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in. I can see you taking a drink of that water, here.
1: That's, watching that's, that? that's my Taiwan.
0: <laughs> if you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may cast your pod. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can follow Latrobe Asia on Twitter. We are at Latrobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.